Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue on through this letter. We're looking at verses 12 through 17 today. Where John writes this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's central point is this. If you are in Christ, do not love the world or anything in it. That's pretty simple, right? If you are in Christ, that's the first half of the passage. Do not love the world, second half of the passage. First part is slightly challenging for a couple of reasons. The latter half is very straightforward, but both combine to flesh out the very first imperative that John gives in this letter. He hasn't given one yet. It's going to be the first of ten imperatives or commands that John is going to give. And we cannot fail to notice how rhetorically stylized this is. I've got this chart for you to look at. It simply represents the first half of the passage. And what I want to do is I want to explain some things about the structure of the whole section, and then we can zoom in on the individual verses. But the individual verses themselves are actually fairly straightforward. Uh, the, the larger questions seem to lie in the structure itself. Notice how the, the, the second half of the section here forms a very obvious parallelism with the first. In this sense, when you even look at this, the way it's put in your Bible, doesn't it look like something out of the wisdom literature, Proverbs or something, the way it is so stylized and, and rhetorically structured? The, the second half very much is like the couplet in the, in the, uh, to the, uh, uh, the corresponding couplet to the first half. It's the parallel stanza, you might say. It re-articulates the same idea for the purpose of emphasis. We see this all the time in the wisdom literature. And this is the same thing, just a, a kind of a macro level. And I've broken it out like this so you can see that. You'll notice that in verse 14, John switches from saying, I am writing to I write. Nothing uh, you know, theologically significant hinges on this, but it does set off. It begins that second section. It begins the parallel stanza that recapitulates the first uh, in the core truth that it's communicating. It signals the second section is beginning. 
It's also important to realize that John says he is writing to them not so that they will adopt any behaviors. That's not what he says. He doesn't say he's writing to them so they will adopt certain beliefs. He says he is writing to them because they already believe them. Because they are already about those things. In every case, he's writing them on the basis of their belief or what has been done for them or who they have overcome. That's why he's writing this. That's what he's saying. I'm writing this to you because of this. Because of that. And in light of that, this section actually looks both ways. John has just finished telling us what walking in the light looks like. And here he explicitly affirms that his audience is doing so. He's implicitly affirmed that. He's called them little children. He's used the we language. But here he makes it explicit. I'm writing these things to you because these things are true about you. John says to his audience. These things are true about you. And this, these indicative statements, meaning indicating what is the case, reality, serves as the basis for the following imperative. Because of this, then command. That's the way it works. That's the way gospel-centered commands work. Because of this, indicative, because of these realities, therefore, do this or don't do this. And so this sets up the second half of our text together this morning in a very foundational way. Finally, what are we to make of the children and the young men and the father's language? As you might suspect, people disagree. Can you believe that? There, there are people who disagree exactly what's going on here. Um, one, some people think that every line addresses every single person in John's audience. Some people think that for whatever reason, and there are a couple given, John is only addressing the males in his, uh, the males in his audience. Third reason is that, third view is that John is addressing people who inhabit uh, different social relationships. A father being someone who has kids, young men, someone who's old enough to bear responsibility in the community. That's how that would have been understood. Another view is that John is addressing the whole community, but then is using the children, the young men, father language to point out what walking in the light looks like at every stage of the Christian life. And I do believe that this is the most likely understanding of what John is doing in an admittedly very stylized section. Let me give you a couple of reasons for believing that. The first is that John introduces the whole section with little children, which is he's already used. Remember in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, he's already used to address the entire audience. His entire audience, he's already addressing them as little children, and he starts this section by saying, little children. Number two, notice that everything that is said here in this section uh, is true not just of certain Christians, but it's true of all Christians. There's no such thing as like a Christian who has overcome the evil one but uh, doesn't know the Father, right? There's no such thing as someone who has their sins forgiven, um, but they haven't overcome the evil one. In other words, all of these things are true of all believers, not simply believers in certain spiritual stages of the Christian life or in, uh, uh, just in terms of age in the Christian community. There are statements that are true of all believers. The third thing that makes me think uh, that, what I, that he is addressing what faithfulness looks like at every stage of the Christian life is that he doesn't give any specifics about how to know which category someone falls into, right? 
I mean, if you're listening to this, you're like, well, wait a second. Do I count as a father? What if, you know, tragically, your children pass away? They're thinking, oh, wait, is he talking to me or do I need to be in the young man camp? Am I too young to be a, a father? Am I a spiritual father? Am I a physical father? Uh, what A young child, am I too old to be considered a young man? Um, in other words, John doesn't seem to be particularly concerned that everyone identifies like, oh, wait, this is the section for me, and then this is the section for me, and then this is the section for me, because he doesn't give any way of telling uh, who is going to fall under what label. But finally, he nevertheless does give a progression through life in the masculine voice. Of course, children is not masculine necessarily, but children and young men and fathers. And so in this very stylized passage, what I'm suggesting is what's going on is that John is writing to his entire audience, yes, but he's providing a picture of what walking in the light looks like throughout the Christian life. Walking in the light looks like, and he's zooming in on different truths that aren't somehow more true or you know, less true at certain points, but that every part of the Christian life takes to heart these truths and is defined by these truths, and that everyone at every single point clings to these truths. And I am writing to you, John says, because these things are true of all of you from the least to the greatest. Now let's zoom in here. Let's zoom in here on the verses. The verses are fairly straightforward. After the Mac, after we've kind of pinned down what John is doing here. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven. A beautiful, beautiful reality. Forgiveness of sin that he's talked about already in the letter. But then he adds, for his namesake. For his namesake. We never have to worry if God will forgive our sins because he forgives our sins primarily for his namesake. This is the same language that he uses with Israel. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for the sake of my great name. For the glory of God. So that he can show his love. John says that that's why your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13 mentions older men who know him who is from the beginning. And that is familiar language by now. Knowing him who is from the beginning, a reference to Christ. And especially between these first two, you already can hear some of that Jeremiah 31 New Covenant language creeping into the text, can't you? Can't you hear that? Forgiveness of sins. Writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. If you're a circler, no appears three times in this passage. All of them will know Him from the least to the greatest is the promise of the New Covenant. See it teased out here. Then he mentions the young men because they have overcome the evil one. Now, given that the world is uh, the domain of the evil one, in fact, at the end of the letter, we're going to see that the evil one, uh, the, the whole world is under this sway and the power of the evil one. Those who are in the world, those who are in darkness, are under the influence and in, uh, kind of inhabiting the realm, as it were, of the evil one, of Satan, and therefore, those who are walking in the light and have come to Christ have overcome that. They have come out of darkness. They have come into the light. They've come out of the realm where Satan is master, okay? And they have come into the light where spirit and father are master. Then the second stanza starts right there. 
Children, I'm writing to you, children, because you, I write to you, excuse me, children, because you know the Father. You have this intimate knowledge, not that you know about Him, not that you know facts about them, but you are intimately acquainted with Him. You have fellowship with God. We've discussed that already. Paul, uh, John has already mentioned it. And again, he is affirming that his readers are in fact in this privileged position, this credible position of knowing the Father. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning to repeat the first part of verse 13. And then he closes out with the young men. Closes out with the young men and he says this, I'm writing to you because you are strong. And that is because of or related to, presumably it would seem, the word of God abides in you. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Presumably something about their strength comes from the word of God, you might think. I think that's probably the most the best understanding of what it means for them to be strong. I don't think it means that they're lifting weights. I don't mean it means that every single person is super mature. The idea that they're strong is because the word of God abides in them. There's power in the word of God. As they abide in Christ and obey His commands to love, the Word abides in them, and those realities testify to the fact that what? That they've overcome the evil one. That they're not walking in darkness. Does the Word of God abide in you powerfully? Does the Word of God abide in you? Or do you kind of wave at the Word of God? Hi, Word. Does it dwell in you richly? Or does it abide in you? John's telling his audience, hey, the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. And so the summary of this first section is this. I'm writing to you because you are in Christ and abiding in him. And I want to briefly say to some of you, I just want to encourage you. There's always the Christian who wants to know, like, am I in or out? Or am I doing enough? And some of you just need to know, just like John is looking at his audience saying, you have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. Some of you need to hear this morning. Some of you need to make big changes. Some of you need to let that wash over your soul. And we trust the Holy Spirit to discern, to give you the discernment of which camp that you are in. Some, some of you need to hear, well done. Is there room for improvement? Always. But well done. Well done. You're walking well. You're walking well. Keep it up. Keep it up. And on the basis of these truths, these realities, flows the imperatives that we are about, the imperative, really, that we are about to see. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, you recall, John uses the word world Differently, uh, he has kind of the context determines how he is using the word cosmos. In uh, two two, we saw the world is characterized specifically by those who are walking in darkness, for whom Christ has made propitiation, and that's the only reason someone can come out of darkness into the light. If, if Christ hasn't made propitiation for people who are currently in darkness, then there's no one else going to be saved. Okay. That doesn't mean, I think people want to read, by the way, into John, 1 John 2, 2, who are in darkness and will forever be in darkness, but that's not what it says. 
that all people without distinction who are in darkness are coming out. They're sheep who are going to believe. That's what the world means in 1 John 2.2. 2. But there is a more general sense of cosmos, kind of a thicker understanding in one sense. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, a misleading way to say it. More of an, a higher level, more of an umbrella understanding of cosmos. And it seems to fit better here. And I think it's the most generic sense that you could probably plug in at one level to a lot of these. And that is this. The, the John uses the world to refer to something like the realm of the fall. The realm of the fall. That's the world for John. One scholar says it like this. He says, John uses the word world to refer not to the natural creation nor to human beings as human beings, but to the whole way of life resulting from the fall of humanity under the power of evil, whether organized into social institutions and power structures or practiced by individuals. It's the whole thing. It's the whole way of life. Whole way of life that has been affected by the fall. It's in this sense that John will tell us in 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil, evil one. Hebrews 2.14 says the evil one has the power of death. Paul's language is that Satan is the little g god of this age. And so the, the, the word world for John is this, and that here, is at least this, this shade of reality caused by and influenced by the evil one. Listen to John 8.44, particularly in light of some of the language we've already heard in 1 John Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. You're of your father, the devil. The devil is the father of a particular realm and a certain group of folks in John's idiom. And your will is to your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. How much have we heard about truth already in John? He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so even when we go back to chapter 1 and we read that, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth because we're in, we're in darkness. We're in the realm of the liar. We are in the power of the evil one insofar as we are in the world. And so in John's dualism that we've talked about, there, just like there is a sharp divide between darkness and light, there is a sharp divide between us, understood as those who are of God, of the Father, of him and those who are of the world, who are in the world. And so the first imperative is do not love this realm. Do not love this broken, falling down, sin ridden world and how things work in it. And then he adds, or the things in it. Or the things in it. What exactly does that mean? Because he adds a layer here. The world is a realm of influence, but as we mentioned, it is populated by things, which is a pretty generic designation, isn't it? Things. What are the things? The imperative isn't not to have things. That's not what it says. It, says, it doesn't say not to utilize things. It says not to love them. Love them. In the next verse, John gives clarity on what he's getting at, but not before we get another rendition of Spotting the fraud. Spotting a fraud. Again, how many times have we seen this? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Anyone who loves the world, 
who takes action towards, sets their heart on the world, indulges the world, pursues the world, does not have the Father. And the idea is the evil one, again in John's dualism, the evil one stands at the head of the world, and then the Father stands at the head of those who are in the light. The Spirit. You have the things of the world, things of the Spirit. Things of the Father. So it is true. This is my Father's world. Okay, not a, but not if you're the people Jesus was talking to. Your father is the devil. You know, when they sing that song, not so happy. Okay? There is a sense in which Jesus truly is the father of the world. Again, confirmed by Paul, confirmed by the author of Hebrews. He says, because of that reason, you can't love the world. If you love the world, you can't love the father. The love of the father is not in him. Love of the father is not in you. If you love the world. People who say that they have their sins forgiven, but who love the world? Fraud. And obviously, even those who had their sins forgiven, it's the group of folks he just talked about in the last section, were capable of being tempted to lapse into this, or he wouldn't have bothered writing it. Because of all these things I just said about you, don't worry about loving the world. There's no possibility that you'd be tempted to do so. That's not what he says. Because of these things, let me just tell you, do not love the world or the things in it. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And then he zooms in and gives us a little bit more clarity. He, under, he clarifies understanding of the things in the world. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I've got to be very careful with what is going on here. Very careful with what's going on here. The first he mentions is the desires of the flesh. Now, everyone who reads the Apostle Paul and marinades in all of his letters immediately thought something necessarily sinful. That the desires of the flesh, because flesh is like the, the, my, I'm acting out of my sinful nature... But remember, we're reading John, not Paul. We're reading John, not Paul. And for John, it doesn't necessarily mean just the word flesh, that is, doesn't necessarily mean something that is wrong or something that's sinful. In fact, it's John who said the word became flesh. Obviously, he doesn't have the same negative connotation that it seems to always have in Paul. Instead, in John's writings, the word flesh is used to kind of designate human, earthly activity as opposed to eternal divine activity. It's John who says again that the word became flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So again, this, this earthly, this bodily, this human form flesh that I have compared with the spirit, the divine. One commentator uh, says it like this. It says, It is the impulse of human behavior that arises from the natural, even God-given, physical desires or needs. And again, that's important to clarify, because when you read that, you probably thought immediately, desires for things that are sinful. But it's actually not a desire for things that are sinful. It's actually a sinful desire for a certain kinds of things. A sinful desire for a certain kinds of thing. That's the whole point. That's the kind of love that is loving the world. 
epithumia, sometimes translated lust. It would be misleading here because you'd be back in thinking sexual sin. But that's the idea. It's a longing for, it's a desire for, and it's getting, it's out of, it's an out of control desire. That's what John's getting at. He's certain, he's talking about ordinary requirements or even just pursuits of, uh, that we have because we are enfleshed human beings uh, uh, that go wonky because they develop into illicit loves. A theme that we're going to return to, by the way, at the very end of John in his mysterious last sentence, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's like, what? He hadn't talked about idols the whole book. What do you mean? Keep yourself? What he's talking about is this, among a few other things. Right here. Similarly, the desire of the eyes does not primarily refer to lust, although it could certainly include it, to be very clear. But it is, refers to, it seems, that, that which is seen with our eyes in general. Remember, look at uh, 1 John uh, 1 there. That which was, 1, 1, excuse me, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Okay? What is the desire of the eyes? The love of things that I can see that are before me. The things that are seen instead of the things that are unseen. I love the things that are right before me, that are seen, that are physical, that don't take any faith. It doesn't take faith to know that I'm standing in front of a bunch of people right now. I love the things that are seen. They can provide me things that things unseen cannot provide me. Or so the sinful flesh would tend to think. And could that certainly include lust? Absolutely, but it include more than that too. Desiring, I want the things that I can see. I have an inordinate love for the things around me and what's in front of my eyes. And then he finally, he mentions the pride of life or something more accurate like the pride of earthly life. This is just, what are the kind of the things that can make you a big deal here? You ever look at someone like, whew, that person's big time. That person's big time. Emphasis here primarily on money and possessions, most likely, because that's what makes you a big deal. Now, you can be a big deal maybe without having money and possessions, but generally, if you're powerful and influential and you're a big deal, you're going to get paid somehow. All right? People who are super talented uh, often get found out. None of these things, money, possessions, or none, none of them are bad in and of themselves. None of them are bad in and of themselves. It is pursuing them the wrong way that constitutes loving the things of the world. And John says, these things, not from the Father, but is from the world. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you skip over kind of the parentheses there. John says that they are not the Father of the world, and that construction refers to the origin or the, the source of one's motivations or desires. Okay? A love of these things, loving these things, isn't motivated by godliness. It doesn't have the Father as the source, but rather the world, the realm over which the evil one has power, and that is set apart and contrasted with the Spirit. In short, here's what we see, and this is crystallized in verse 17. I have this written up here for you if you've lost the forest from the trees. To set our hearts... Uh, to set our hearts on the world and the things in it is to desire a temporary earthly order that is fading away and has no eternal value instead of a permanent heavenly order that is breaking in and will last forever. Some of those things may be sinful. 
Some of them may not be sinful. But his whole point is, don't, don't love things that will not last and do not have eternal value. That's what John is getting at. And that's what we see if, if you were saying, well, I think that's a stretch, Tyler. Well, let's read the last verse. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever and therefore will not pass away. One thing will pass away. This world and its desires passing away. The person who does the will of God will not pass away. We've already heard this language. Back up to verse 8 of chapter 2. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light's already coming. And so what he's saying is, is that to love something destined to pass away is not only a desire that doesn't come from the Father, it's not consistent with the end that is breaking into the present. It's not consistent with it. Or, and it's my great delight to say, to, you are loving on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of history if you're loving the world. Because it's passing away. It's passing away, and there's something coming that will not pass away. And that's where we are to set our eyes. That's where we're to set our hearts. That's where we're to set our, 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 our minds. If you're in Christ, do not love the world or the things in it. John's message. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? How to not love the world. You say, Tyler, I heard you. Don't love the world. Now, now what have I said? All right. Get out there and not love the world. You're like, okay, I mean, I hear you, but like, what, is that, what does that look like? There could be different conceptions of that. How do I go do that uh, uh, when I leave here and this week, whatever? Well, let's talk about it just a little bit. Three things. Three things. The first step in not loving the world is cultivating proper affection and love for God. The uh, Middle Tennessee had the great misfortune of playing Alabama yesterday, and they were destroyed. And one thing that Alabama likes to do is they like to uh, take these, of course, Middle Tennessee was terrible, so none of the drives took very long. But anyways, when we're playing good teams, what they'll do is they'll take like eight minutes to drive down the field. And it's this soul-sucking process for the other team where they would really just pray like, hey, we'll just give you a score if you'll kick the ball back to us. I mean, it takes off half the whole half of a quarter on one possession and man, it is just a grind all the way down the field. In other words, you know what the defense is doing that time? They're over there sitting on the bench, having a Gatorade and a smile under the little mister in the shade. The best defense is when your defense doesn't even have to step on the field because your offense has the ball the whole time. Right? I'm suggesting that to have a genuine desire for, a genuine wonder for, over, longing for God, if you're going to do that, you're not going to love the world. The world will not have a chance to ensnare us because of what we're loving. So here's the thing. It's not possible to not love the world without putting something else in its place. Or, to steal Thomas Chalmers' language, you have to have the expulsive power of a new affection. If I just look at you and say, don't go pursue the world, you know how well that's going to work? As well as I say, don't think of a pink elephant. It's like, oh, see, I got all of you right there. Don't do it. Oh, so I'm just going to grit and just not. No, here's how you do it. 
you, 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 you don't go this way by going this way. That's how. You don't just tell someone to not do something. You tell them to press into something else. You've got to cultivate a love for God. You have to grow in your affection for God. Just trying to not do something. Simply trying to not do something. Not love the world is a strategy for avoiding sin that has a very short shelf life. It usually doesn't last very long because we're all lovers of something. We're meant to be worshipers and lovers. The question is just what is it? And so the very first crucial step in not loving the world is having something else to love. And in John's language, there's only other one other option. If I'm not going to love the world, I'm going to love the Father. So the question is, how do you cultivate a love for God, an enjoyment of God, a way to cherish God, and so that you're pursuing God is the best defense against not loving the world? Don't try to just subtract it out. Think you can have a big hole there and, and, and just somehow not just not love the world. Take a negative action. No, you have to take a positive action this way to avoid going this way. You know what happens when you have a boat next to the dock that's not tied up? You don't have to do anything in order for it to just drift. Nothing. You can sit on that boat. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. You will drift. And no one drifts towards holiness. You cannot simply not go this way. You must go this way. And this way, your right in this example is towards the Father. The Christian who's really in danger here is the lukewarm Christian. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to love not they're trying to not love the world or the things in it, but honestly, they, their love of God is kind of like their love of that extended family member they see like once every two years. And uh, you know, if they died, they'd be sad, but it'd honestly be more sad if they got roped into being a pallbearer. We all have those people. It's like, ugh, man, I'm really sad. We'll send flowers, but do I have to actually go to a funeral? If that's how you love God, that won't expel anything. That won't do any work for you. That will not help you. Uh, that will not help you not love the world. You, so we must be about cultivating a love for God, cultivating a love for His Word, cultivating relationship with Him in prayer. Not just trying to obey God, but learning to love God. Not just uh, obeying the standard, but loving the standard. First step in having any chance of successfully not loving the world. Cultivating a love for God. The second is having proper value on things, good things that can turn into functional gods. Functional gods. Again, at the end of the book, he's going to say, keep yourself from idols. He's not worried that his people are making statues in their houses. He's talking about good things that can transform into things that are functionally gods. No one would admit it. No one would admit this about themselves, but that's what happens. I will not recycle my illustration of sin being both the smuggler and contraband so soon, lest I wear people out. However, in order to have any chance of not loving the world, in terms of how things are currently set up, where there are so many things that can make you feel so fulfilled and so satisfied, and so many things at your fingertips, we need to be able to distinguish the difference between gifts that God has given us for our use and enjoyment, and those exact same things... But, we, but when we love them, instead of use them and enjoy them. 
We need a good stable of questions to examine our own hearts. Let me give you a couple of questions. And these are, that's all these are. This is not a wooden diagnostic. These are just questions to say, here are the areas where you should probably be watchful. Number one, what are the contents of my daydreams? What are the contents of my daydreams? Well, I don't have anything else, any responsibilities. I'm just kind of sitting there. What does my mind naturally drift towards in terms of enjoyable thought? Could be great things. Could be great things that turn into loves, too. What are the contents of my daydreams? Fertile soil for asking questions about things that you might love. Good things that make bad gods. Second, what in my life, if I lost, would I find it incredibly difficult to be fulfilled without? You say, I take this out of your life. Oh, I I couldn't even. I could have no fulfillment, no joy. You might need to think about that. If your love for that thing has grown out of proportion, and whether you are enjoying something in the world, appreciating something in the world that God has created, or you are loving it, something that will pass away eventually, that will pass away. When do I find myself experiencing the greatest sense of well-being, achievement, or satisfaction? Where you find that. Fertile soil for, for an idol hunt. What areas am I, when I feel this, what makes me feel this way? Well, what do I long for? What do I long to hear from people? How do I want people to consider me? So when I'm successful, do I want to have money? Do I want to be seen a certain way? Have a certain relationship? Whatever it is, think about it. What might I be tempted to sin in order to get or achieve? Oh, I'm not saying that you would sin, but what might you like, eh? Oh, is this a lie or just kind of uh, not the whole picture? Any, what are the things that would make you entertain a stretch like that in order to get something that you wanted? Might have a problem there of loving something. And how do I tend to understand my value and identity? Where do I find that in? How do I see myself? Like, who am I? Who am I in a way that is fulfilling and satisfying and not just a theological statement? There's some questions to ask yourself to see where could I have developed a love for things that I can see with my eyes that are needs and desires of the body that have really subtly transformed into a love of the things that are in the world. Finally is this. So we have proper affections, proper value, and then proper perspective. Things that are fleeting versus things that are eternal. We have to keep an eternal spec perspective as we live in a world that is passing away. I want to close by paraphrasing one author's illustration to help us keep perspective in this area of stewarding and even enjoying good things that will pass away. I want you to listen to this illustration here. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated and utilized Confederate money. 
Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war's over. As Christians, we have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. The things of this world are passing away and will vanish when Christ returns and the new eternal order of things is ushered in forever. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect how you pursue it and why you desire it. To set your heart on things that are passing away is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money even when you know it's about to become nothing more than a historical artifact. Loving the world and its things isn't only wrong, it's just plain stupid. And so, if you are in Christ this morning, I would encourage you to ask, do you have that perspective? Do you have an eternal perspective or do you go after things that are fleeting and temporal? One of the most, one of the scariest things is succeeding and, and, and thriving in areas that have no eternal value, and putting your heart and soul into them, really being great at them, and just to have it pass away. I'll leave that to you to consider. If you're in Christ, do not love the world. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that the world is passing away because of what Christ has done. We're thankful that the light is breaking in. We pray that you would help us ask our sober-minded questions of ourselves. Where of our desire for good things, our enjoyment of good things, turned into a love for the things of the world, things affected by the fall that will pass away. Help point us to the purifying blood of Christ as we do so. Remind us who we are before we consider how and what we should do. In Jesus' name, amen.